If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. Our text is found in verse number 13 of Exodus 20. You shall not murder. We're studying the Ten Commandments. And to review, it's been argued that the first four commandments, which we've studied, deal with one's relationship with God. You're to love the Lord your God. Okay? And that the second six deal with one's relationship with his or her neighbor. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. As I've said, fair enough. But some go further and take it as a given that the first four are about religion, religious matters, and the second six are about ethics or social matters. And they argue that they can keep the last group of commandments as they are a practical guide to ethical behavior. This is what a good person, this is how a good person should live. Um, What they mean is they keep the second six. I don't murder, I don't commit adultery, I don't steal, I don't give false witness, I don't covet. Completely ignoring the first four and the fifth is somewhat iffy um, because it doesn't necessarily have religious overtones, except there is that promise at the end. Um, But it's not a civil or ethical matter either. You know, honoring your parents is not seen by many as an ethical matter. Thus far, we've looked at the first five commandments. And what we've seen is that they present the nature of things, the true nature of things. This is the way creation is. There is one true God. You shall have no other gods before me. God is spirit. You shall not make any images of God. Third, God's name reveals who he is. You should not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Fourth, God created time as gift, and among his creations is rest, so observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And what we saw last week is that God gave us our life, our being, through our parents, and therefore we are to honor our father and mother. One more thing about the fifth commandment. In the modern world, due to technology, a person may not know who is his or her father and or mother. Artificial insemination by a donor, surrogacy, and all these things. But you know what? In in a sense, this was true during the time in the past in adoption, that a child might be adopted and never know who his or her biological parents were. The question might be asked, but particularly in today's world, uh, with surrogacy and and all these artificial insemination, does this commandment still apply? And I would say yes, because I'm convinced that the focus is that it is to remind us that we are creatures, okay? We are to recognize that we are made, not manufactured. We are brought to life by the gift of God, and we are to be grateful. Honoring one's parents, if you know who your parents are, is a path to recognizing that we owe our existence to others. For those who may not know who their parents are, it may be a more difficult path, but still the issue is you are a creature. You are made in the image of the creator. Today we come to the part of the commandments that people see as dealing with ethics. And as such, they're like, yeah, these, these apply to everybody. Okay, These are the ones that everybody should keep. 
And I've argued that they all actually belong together. You can't make this artificial division. There is a connection between the fifth commandment and the sixth commandment. Okay. The fifth commandment tells us that in fact, our life is a gift through our parents, our father and mother. We are to honor them. The sixth commandment says, don't take that gift away. You shall not murder. So let's look at the sixth commandment today. One writer has observed here is a commandment that is short, terse, and to the point, simple. In Hebrew, this verse is actually only two words. Uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, translation of uh, the message um, it is translated, by the way, from the original Hebrew and Greek, but Peterson was a poet as well, and so sometimes he takes some liberties. Um, but I like what he does with the last five commandments. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lies about your neighbor, no lusting after your neighbor's house or wife or servant or maid or ox or donkey. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. So let's look at the matter of the Sixth Commandment. First of all, what does it mean? How are we to read it? The NIV says, you shall not murder. The King James has, thou shalt not kill. The ESV says, you shall not murder. And then it has a note that the Hebrew word also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence. Is it murder or is it killing? What is forbidden here? I hope, I think, that as we go along, what is intended will become clearer. But at this point, let's, let's say that it is murder, which brings with it a real sense that it deals with the death of a human being. Okay. Uh, some have suggested that this means you can't kill anything. Uh, and I, I think they've really missed something important here. Going back to Genesis 1, it's argued... You know, God says, um, everything that has breath in it, I give every green plant for food. That is, in creation, everybody is a herbivore. Everyone eats plants. It's a plant-based diet. Animals were, humans were. This is before the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, we are told that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And many have assumed, and I would agree with them, that in fact, God had to kill animals in order to have animal skins to cover Adam and Eve because of their sin. After the flood, Noah is told, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I give you the green plants, I now give you everything, which means that animals could be killed for food. And so this sixth commandment is, do not murder a human being. But this brings up the second thing to consider. What is a human being? We looked at this last week. We begin at creation, as we should with all things, that in Genesis 2, we are told of the creation of the first human being, that is Adam. The Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We tend to think of ourselves as having two parts, body and soul. This is not correct. God did not make, this is from Wendell Berry, God did not make a body and put a soul in it, like a letter into an envelope. He formed man out of dust. By breathing his breath into it, 
He made the dust live. I think we tend to view our bodies as balloons and our souls, the part that God gave us by his breath, as the air in the balloon. So when we die, the balloon is deflated and that which God breathed into us is taken out. And I'm convinced that this is wrong. Human beings are animated earth, which contains the very breath of God. Our bodies are holy ground. Every human body is. When we say our bodies, every part of us, okay? If death is in fact, if it's not letting air out of the balloon, then murder isn't letting air out of the balloon. It isn't just taking, you know, letting their spirit free and letting, you know, their soul go to God. It is an assault on holy ground. So is violence. Physical violence against a human being is an assault on the whole person in whose very being is God's breath. And again, not the air in the balloon, but every part of us is animated by God's breath. That's why the Old Testament takes what many believe to be a harsh view um, against various crimes against the person. It's like, why? I mean, lighten up. Why are you, you know? The person is sacred ground, and that needs to be remembered. The life that we have is given to us through our parents. And so interestingly enough, some of the crimes for which capital punishment was the punishment is striking one's parents, cursing one's parents, worshiping other gods, and violating the Sabbath. The commandments are connected, and we have to see them that way. James tells us in a different way, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. It's all tied together. The third thing to consider is that the very first crime that we know of in scripture was a murder. The first human being born into the world was Cain. Uh, Eve said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. He committed the first murder in human history. We're told in Genesis 4 that it was time to come together to give an offering to God. And apparently Cain was a farmer and his brother, his younger brother, Abel, took care of sheep and they both brought their offerings to the Lord. We're told that on Cain and his offering, God did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It's really quite fascinating. You have a conversation between the creator of the world and the first person born into the world. That is Cain. Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's, let's, let's go out and shoot the breeze. Let's go out in the field. And while they were there, he killed his brother. And God said, um, where is Abel? By the way, we've, I've mentioned this many times before. It's fascinating how many times God asks a question when obviously he knows the answer. 
You see this in the life of Jesus as well in the Gospels. Next time you read the Gospels, mark every time Jesus asks a question. God knows precisely what has happened. But then Cain replies now famously to us, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Animated dirt, animated ground has been destroyed and received back into the ground. Abel knows, or Cain knows somehow, that there will be retaliation, which will be his own death. And so he's very afraid. And God says, listen, uh, I'll put a mark on you so that anyone who hurts you will in fact be hurt as well. As fascinating as it is tragic, the beginning of the human race, the first human born into the world, was a murderer. And murder has marked us ever since then. The fourth thing to consider are the instructions after the flood given to Noah. After God killed all human beings on the planet, except for eight people, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, as they come out of the ark, he gives the following instructions. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. Two things are mentioned here. First of all, that capital punishment is the punishment for murder. And secondly, human beings are made in the image of God. Capital punishment is a punishment for an attack on the person of God by proxy. You can't kill God. You can't attack God, okay? But you can attack that which bears his image. And that is precisely what murder is. Um, I don't think most murderers consider that when they commit a murder. Um, I don't know if you've ever read P.D. James's novels. Uh, she's a Christian woman, a Christian author, uh, since passed. But in her novels, every person who commits a murder thinks they're doing it for the right reason. No one thinks, I hate this person, I'm going to kill them. They're all like, this is the best thing. This will solve the problem. And no, it is an assault on the creator by proxy. The fifth thing is that the lawgiver, the person to whom the Ten Commandments was given, was a murderer. Moses was a murderer right? That he had been raised by Pharaoh's uh, daughter. And one day he went out and he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a, a Hebrew slave. We are told glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Um, the lawgiver was in fact a lawbreaker. There was premeditation. Look this way and that, nobody's there, and he kills the Egyptian. And there was fear of retaliation, rightly so, because when Pharaoh heard of it, he wanted to kill him, so Moses fled and lived in Midian. The sixth thing to consider is the sacrificial system. Fascinatingly, the word blood appears in the Bible 90 times. 
65 times of those are in the book of Leviticus, that which describes to us the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was a bloody system. You had to kill an animal. The blood had to be sprinkled or put on the horns of the altar. It involved killing. And if you read about the dedication of the temple that Solomon built, a lot of killing, a lot of killing of animals. And therefore, the Sixth Commandment does not apply to animals, but to human beings. Sixty-five times in the book of Leviticus, 20 times in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to Jewish Christians and explaining that the Old Testament system is, in fact, pointing to the Lord Jesus. Uh, What Dave read to us earlier, the promise of forgiveness, was from chapter 10. But let me read to you from Hebrews 9. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offers himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness. As I said, I mention this because I'm convinced that the Sixth Commandment deals with the murder of a human being, not the killing of an animal, which is mentioned here as a sacrifice. It pointed ahead to the death of Jesus, who was in fact murdered. He was executed on a cross. But the Sixth Commandment is in fact the killing of a human being. The seventh thing to consider are the cities of refuge. I don't know if you know about this. I hope that you do, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Israel is brought out of slavery, out of Egypt, and they're given the law. They journey. It takes them 40 years because of their sin to finally get to the promised land. And Moses gives them instructions. God has given him instructions that there are to be six cities of refuge, three on the east side of the Jordan River, because two and a half tribes are like, yeah, we like it here. We don't want to go over the Jordan but three on the west side of the Jordan. The names, I think, are familiar even today. On the east side, Golan, as in the Golan Heights, Ramoth Gilead, and Bezer. On the west side, Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. And what were the cities of refuge? What is their purpose? Well, it's spelled out in Numbers chapter 35. A city of refuge was a place where you could go if you had accidentally killed someone. Let's say you're out chopping down a tree and somehow the head of the axe flies off and kills the person who's there with you. You've killed a person. You should die. So what you do is you run to the city of refuge and you stay there until they can hold a trial. And there the elders of the town hold a trial to see if in fact you're guilty of murder or not, if it was accidental. Um... Is this something you did with malice aforethought? That's a phrase from uh, Numbers 35. Did you do it in hostility? 
or was it without hostility, unintentionally? So you stand trial. If you are acquitted, do you get to go home? No, you do not. You have to live in the city of refuge until the high priest dies. And then you can go back home. If you go outside the city, you can, in fact, be killed by a member of the family of the person who died that you killed accidentally. You have to stay within the city of refuge. On the face of it, this seems somewhat unfair. It was an accident. It wasn't on purpose. I didn't mean to kill this person. Yeah, and for that reason, you don't have to be killed yourself. You're spared the death penalty. But you did kill someone. And the life of that person has value. The death cannot be ignored. Can't be swept under the rug. Your life cannot simply go on as it did beforehand. There is a price to be paid, not with your blood, but with your life, until the high priest dies. And this is just a reminder that even if it is an accident, a life has been taken, a life has been lost. Sacred ground has been destroyed. It cannot simply be ignored. This brings up the next issue, the eighth point, in that what about capital punishment? We've been reading the Old Testament and the law, but what does the New Testament tell us about it? After all, our situation is different than Israel's. Israel was one nation. We are many people across the planet. Um, we're not a single political entity. Uh, we live and have lived under different political regimes, different systems. What are we as God's people supposed to do in the matter of murder? Well, in Romans 13, Paul says some fairly amazing things. Let me read to you the first five verses of Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. Verse 4. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of conscience. It is a much debated passage, but Paul makes some really fascinating statements here. One might even say astounding. We must submit to governing authorities. Existing authorities have been established by God. Those who rebel against those authorities are rebelling against God. But the big one is, the one in authority is God's servant. What if he's a pagan? doesn't matter. He is God's servant. And as servants, they have authority and they bear the sword. And the sword isn't just for sort of whacking you on the head. It is for killing you if you have committed a capital crime. 
The function of government is to punish those who do wrong, to commend those who do what is right. In a word, it is justice, protecting the subjects of a given country, to maintain the peace, if you wish. And I would argue that this doesn't simply mean criminal justice, you know, that in a domestic situation. It also includes external affairs, which may in fact result in war, that the government is to protect its citizens, and if various reasons come up, they are in fact able to go to war justifiably uh, to protect their citizens. Just a quick aside here, because I did a series on this some years ago. Um, There is what is called the just war theory. That is to say that war can be sometimes seen as an instrument of justice. That a war, in fact, can be fought to fight injustice and to protect the citizens. There are at least seven criteria for the just war. I'll just mention them quickly. Wars of aggression and self-aggrandizement are unacceptable um, because they violate civic peace and service. And so a country may go to war. A leader may say, we're going to war because of this injustice to prevent harm to the innocent. Um, Third, a war must be openly declared or authorized by legitimate authority. It is a response to an instance of unjust aggression. It must begin with the right intentions. There must be, or it is a last resort, that's number six. And lastly, there must be reflection on whether or not the cause has reasonable chance of success. You might say, well, they did something wrong, we gotta do something about it, but if you're going to get destroyed in the process, then you might need, want to rethink that. All this to say, going to war, capital punishment, is not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. But then this brings up another thing for you to consider. Can the state be guilty of murder? We're told they bear the sword. They're an authority. But can they, in fact, be guilty of murder? In a word, yes. Absolutely. What we find in Romans 13 means that the head of state does not simply have power. They have the responsibility to act well and to do what is good, to act for the common good. Romans 13 does not give carte blanche to the government to say, hey, you guys are in charge, you're God's servants, you can do what you want. Not at all. Governing authority is not something to be fought over, even though we've just gone through an election, where the winning party feels like they have authority and they can do whatever they want because they won, and then flip over to Romans 13, like, hey, we're God's servants. Um, You have to listen to us. No. Some would argue that Romans 13 has to be followed or can be followed only if the person authority has good character. Um, that is to say, the office of governing authority requires more than an ability to administrate and to administer justice. But you have to be a good person. Some would say, well, that's, that's totally unrealistic, and I would agree. It also goes beyond what we find in Romans 13. We hope and we pray and we should pray that our leaders would have integrity and would make right decisions. But it is not a condition for our obedience. Paul tells Timothy, urge then first of all that requests, prayer, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, 
for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. There's no condition based on the integrity of the ruler. One thinks of the Pax Romana here, the Roman peace under which Paul and the early church lived. And then we think of a quote from Tacitus, a Roman historian, um, words apparently said by one of the enemies of Rome. Uh, let me get his name here. Calgagus, a leader of the Britons. They, that is the Romans, plunder, they slaughter, and they steal. This they falsely call empire. And where they make a wasteland, they call it peace. To some, I think the more familiar phrase is, they made a desert and called it peace. We need, to, we need to be clear that the government can, in fact, be guilty of doing something that is wrong, of committing murder. There have been in human history times in which nations have gone to war claiming to seek peace. I think it's peace as they define it. And as Calgagus said, they make it a desert and they call that peace. I have come across a book, it's a fascinating book, entitled We Kill Because We Can. It's an indictment of the U.S. policy of drone killing. Today we hear phrases like targeted killing, extrajudicial execution, and the like. And the thinking that is that the government, the U.S. government, is allowed to kill or to assassinate someone who is hostile or who might be a threat, an eminent threat to the citizens of this country. And due to drone technology, such a person can be killed without endangering any of our military forces. But as the author asks, should the current state of technology dictate morality? One of the drone operators, when asked, what do you do for a living? Answered, I kill people. Such a view of human life is unbiblical. Life is sacred. And yes, there are some people who should be put to death. But always we should remember that life is sacred. Human beings are animated earth, which contains the very breath of God. The last thing to consider, and we'll spend a bit of time here, what did Jesus say about murder? Or did he say anything at all about murder? Actually, he did in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Any, again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Beginning with these verses and to the end of chapter 5, Jesus speaks about six specific areas of morality. And he does so by doing contrast. And you know, Jesus said in verse number 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so what we find in beginning in verse number 21 might seem to contradict that. It seems that, in fact, Jesus is presenting a new system of morality. He's abandoning the Mosaic law, that he is presenting a new interpretation of the Mosaic law, and thereby, in essence, abolishing it, uh, or ultimately he is just, in fact, abolishing the Old Testament. 
Some would say that Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is superficial, it is insufficient, and therefore he has come to fix things. Simply not the case. Jesus' teachings were in line with those of the Old Testament. Or correctly, more correctly, the teachings of the Old Testament were in line with what Jesus taught. There's an introductory formula found in verse 21 and 23, or 33. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. In verses 27, 38, and 43, you have heard that it was said. Verse 31, it has been said. It, what these all have in common is it was said. And then Jesus says, but I say. That's the contrast. But what we find is that whenever Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, he says, it is written. He doesn't say it was said, or you have heard that it was said. He says, it is written. So Jesus is not referring to the Old Testament as it is written here in Matthew 5, but the way it has been taught, the way the people have heard it, the way it was said. There's a contrast between what the Old Testament says and what the people have been taught. And Jesus is in line with the Old Testament, not with what the people have been taught taught by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus is now trying to correct the false teachings of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's not a new teaching. It's not a new doctrine. It is, in fact, saying, this is what Moses meant. This is what the law is about. And what you have been taught is, in fact, quite incorrect. What the Jews had been taught was, in fact, a very narrow understanding of the law. Except for the Tenth Commandment, they all deal with externals. Okay? And this one in particular, do not murder. Okay? That's an external thing. What's in your heart? You know, now in our country we talk about hate crimes, you know, that what's in your heart and that caused you. No, they're all external. Okay? Which would seem to indicate that the Pharisees are teaching that you can beat a person to within an inch of his or her life, don't kill them, I didn't murder them, and I have not broken the sixth commandment. And Jesus is trying to show people this is not the way the law is to be understood. To understand the law, we need to remember, we need to recognize the holiness of God. Do we think that God doesn't care what we think? the murderous thoughts we may harbor in our hearts? Do we think that he doesn't care what we say to other people against that person? Do we think God doesn't care what we do to someone, beat him within an inch of his life? My hands are clean. I didn't kill him. No, we need to remember the holiness of God. And we need to remember the place of the heart. The things begin in the heart, and then they come out in our actions. The one thing about the law is that it basically says, I can't know what's in your heart. But I can see what you do. You know, whenever uh, you go on trial, whenever a person is on trial, a mistake may be made. The wrong verdict may be given because we don't know what's in a person's heart. We just don't. Okay? We can deceive each other, but the heart is where things begin.
it's where things begin and our actions flow out of that. And I would say that the law shows a concern for people. God is concerned about those who bear his image, those who are sacred ground. He cares for the person sinned against. If you do something to harm that person, if you insult them, if you say you're a fool, God cares about that person. But he also cares about the perpetrator, the person doing these things. Because, in fact, you may bring, well, could end up in hell. It may bring death. And as Jesus begins to show these contrasts with a bad understanding of the law and the correct understanding, he begins with this one, this commandment, that of murder. It's the first commandment which required the death penalty. Listed among the Ten Commandments, it was, this commandment was severely limited by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to mean only the act of homicide. If you murder someone, then you're guilty of breaking this commandment. But if you don't, then you're keeping the law. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way we are to understand it. Jesus spoke of three types of sins. One is, in fact, murdering the person. Okay? But the other is uh, anger, and the third is insults. That if you are angry against someone, unrighteous anger, because there is righteous anger, but anger that comes out of pride, that comes out of hatred, out of malice, out of a desire for revenge. Yeah, that's not, that's not right. That is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. By the way, I wonder how many movies could be made or would have been made if you took out the revenge factor. If you said, okay, this movie cannot have any revenge in it, why would we watch them? Because we're there, we want revenge. You know, somebody's done something and I'm really angry and I'm going to do something against them. No, anger is not right. Neither is insult. Racha is an Aramaic term which is intended to insult the person's intelligence. You imbecile, you numbskull. This is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. To say that someone is a fool. But then this brings up a really interesting question. Didn't Jesus call people fools? In Matthew 23, Woe to you, blind guides, you say, If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by the oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? Is Jesus being inconsistent? No. I would say that what Jesus is doing is out of righteous anger. And we find in the Psalms, particularly, a fool is someone who acts and lives as though God does not exist. And what he's saying to the Pharisees, teachers of the law, you know what, you guys, you act as though God does not exist. Don't, if you swear by the temple, you're not bound. But if you swear by the gold, it's like, what are you guys thinking? You are fools. You act as though God does not exist. And Jesus speaks out of righteous anger. What Jesus does in Matthew 5 
is make a connection between anger in the heart, insults from the mouth, and ultimately murder. Anger and insults are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody, somebody who stands in our way. The thought that comes to mind is, I wish that person was dead. All of these are offensive to the holiness of God, and they violate the law of God, specifically the sixth commandment. To refer to James again in James 3, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. I'm going to be careful here, because we live in a time in which if you say something that someone doesn't like, it's like, that's violence. That's a microaggression. You're speaking against me. When you actually speak out of hatred and anger, it is an assault on sacred ground. It is an assault on the person who has been made in the image of God. And it violates the sixth commandment. It is, in fact, an act of violence. The bottom line is that human life is sacred. It is a gift. It needs to be recognized as such. And it is not to be violated against. It is not to be taken. Remember that human beings are animated earth, which contains the very breath of God. No murder. Let's pray together. Our Father, when we come to your law, we are convicted as lawbreakers. We might think of the commandments, this would be the one that we've not violated. We've not killed anybody. But in fact, we hear the words of Jesus. And we realize that we fail to recognize the sacredness of human life. And we say things, we think things, which are an assault against you by proxy. We do it against someone. And oftentimes we feel justified. We can rationalize that that person's not a good person. They're an evil person. And so I can say things about them or to them. And we forget what Jesus says a little later in Matthew 5, that we are to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. We seem to have forgotten the value of human life. That certainly is the case in our culture today. And perhaps we have been swayed by the tide, by the current. By your grace, may we stand firm in your law and say no murder, no violence against human beings. We recognize the sacredness of life. We recognize that when you breathe into Adam, you didn't blow air into a balloon, but you animated the very dirt 
the ground he was made of. And as such, every human being is sacred ground and is not to be violated. We thank you for the gift of life that you gave us through our parents. May we recognize the preciousness of it, the giftedness of it. May we recognize that in every human being that we come across. And the second great commandment, may we love our neighbor as ourself. I thank you for bringing us together today. And ask that as we leave this place, your spirit and grace would go with us. As we walk through the world, filled with fallen human beings, we would recognize their preciousness, their sacredness. And we would love them. We thank you for your love. We love you because you first loved us. And may we show that love to those around us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.